Stabilization analysis is a type of population analysis. With these lessons, starting with strategic intelligence analysis and ending by looking at partisans and proxy warfare in great power competition, we are getting ever more surgical with learning how we can best analyze and then navigate the so-called global information environment, what others might call many overlapping information environments in political warfare and in kinetic war. We'll discuss two strategic stabilization analytic tools in plenary, and then a case study and discussion during seminar time. In this podcast, I want to supplement the readings and provide a minority counterview, an antithesis behind the type of stabilization assistance, strategic stabilization campaigns, and stability operations that have been conducted over the past quarter century. First, though, a definition of stabilization according to JP3-7 from 2016, and I quote, Stability can be best described as the overarching characterization of the effects created by activities of the United States government outside the U.S. using one or more of the instruments of national power to minimize, if not eliminate, economic and political instability and other drivers of violent conflict across one or more of the five U.S. government sectors, which are as follows. One, security. Two, justice and reconciliation. Three, humanitarian assistance and social well-being. Four, governance and participation. And five, economic stabilization and infrastructure. And I go on to quote, stability operations within the range of military operations Efforts can be conducted across the conflict continuum. Military support to stabilization efforts during peacetime generally takes the form of routine contact, military presence, and security operations activities, such as security force assistance, state partnership programs, and security assistance. During crises or during crisis response and limited contingency operations, the balance of stability and combat operations varies widely. Now, my reaction to observing strategic operational and tactical stabilization missions from the past three decades, and my reaction to this joint doctrine that I just quoted from, and again, I am playing the devil's advocate, providing a counter view, an antithesis to the view of a top-down, heavy footprint stabilization assistance mindset. So I offer the following for our debate. The future of stability operations should be not to conduct stability operations. That is not to conduct them in the manner commonly executed. To avoid the type of stability operations that calls for a heavy top-down approach and heavy footprint. The type of stability operations in which we are the ones out and about conducting the actual stability projects and operations the type in which we are directly attempting to mitigate sources of instability. This type of stability operations can destabilize, paradoxically, in four distinct ways. First, our presence in contested countries where we are not welcome can be destabilizing. For example, in Muslim-majority lands where there might be insurgents and violent extremists, let's say in some 
uh, areas of Chad and Kenya, for example, our very presence can cause instability, bringing insurgent attacks on the local populace and materializing violent extremists, often simple master narrative that is defending soil from Western presence. Even when we're defending the lives of civilians and providing humanitarian aid, this narrative of defending soil from Western presence, it can recruit. This narrative grows support or at least apathy in some populations. This narrative motivates criminal elements and anti-Western violent extremists, partisans, and guerrillas. Veteran soldier and author Kevin Powers describes this phenomenon as, and I quote, the sheer brutality of our presence. I'm not saying to give in to terrorist or insurgent or anti-U.S. proxy wishes. I'm only suggesting that we should always consider the immediate destabilizing repercussions of our footprint. Second, our stabilization money often destabilizes. In the case of Afghanistan, one top funding source for the Taliban and also some elements of al-Qaeda and ISIS and Khorasan or ISIS-K, was shaking down local businesses for cash earned from coalition contracts. The money the Taliban squeezed from our contracts during every single step of every single large-scale contract, from the bidding step to the implementing partners trying to measure effects, also known as measuring impacts. Now, I'm not talking about small USAID contracts. I'm not talking about small battalion uh, contracts. I'm speaking about building highways, fixing dams, this level of contracting. Many auditors and analysts claim that this siphoning off of stabilization project money may have even eclipsed violent extremists and insurgent money made from opium and heroin, Afghanistan producing most of the world's opium and heroin. This is according to unclassified reports from Special Operations Command, the United Nations, and Cigar. Furthermore, money going to a government in which corruption is the standard simply exacerbates perceptions of corruption. In this case, I'm speaking about a level of corruption that is beyond what is normally expected and acceptable to that population. This exacerbation of perceptions of corruption can drive a populace away from constructive traditional governance systems towards insurgents and other destabilizing networks. So first, we have money that goes to stable areas. This can exacerbate feelings of being disenfranchised in the eyes of those in unstable areas. Then we have money that goes to unstable areas or less stable areas that some have claimed at some times in some places actually drives insidious war profiteering by some locals to keep areas seemingly relatively insecure and unstable to keep that stabilization money coming. Third, we will never completely understand what stability is. Stability is in the eyes of the local. The only stability definition that matters is what locals perceive. In rural and tribal land throughout Southwest and Southeast Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, the Sahel, and beyond, the definition of stability very often changes dramatically from village to village, tribe to tribe, province to province, and is embedded in local foundational narratives. Even the best anthropologists or best survey services uh, cannot grasp. And instability also rises when we place additional tasks on stabilization missions, such as, and very important missions, of women's rights and a U.S. brand of democracy. 
destabilizing phenomena in some areas of the world, arguably, even if they are, to us, noble, necessary, and humanitarian just causes. Fourth and finally, stability by itself has never been proven, not once, to holistically prevent violent extremism or terrorism or political violence or proxy wars by players in regional and global power competition, even if it might seem logical to us that stability should fix these situations. It is true that violent extremists and other destabilizers continue to find safe haven and some recruits in rural areas where traditional governance structures are damaged and where there is a scarcity of resources, such as some areas of Niger, northern Nigeria, Chad, Philippines, Kenya, Mozambique, Yemen, and even still some pockets, arguably, in Colombia. But I ask us all to think of the political violence that grows more viciously at times in stable areas. Those violent extremists or otherwise politically motivated violent ideologues and leaders that grew up in stable countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom, the United States. Violent extremist leaders and ideologues and political violence actors and those behind major attacks generally come from relatively wealthy, educated, and stable backgrounds with access to freedoms that few in the world have. Many of today's transnational insurrection leaders are, in fact, engineers and doctors. So if we have to look more holistically than just through the lens of stabilization when meeting our tactical operation, operational and strategic objectives, which is to create impermissible areas to violent extremists and other agents of instability. Now, during the global war on terrorism, this is a way of simply saying deny terrorist safe haven in order to protect the homeland. Areas impermissible to violent extremists was the clear and is the clear end state, even to some tactical units conducting what some dub as stability or foreign internal defense or full spectrum stabilization missions on six continents. Stability by itself is not the end state. As one agricultural team in Parwan province in 2013 that I met with wrote on their office door to remind themselves of their every, their mission on every day, their mission every time they went out uh, from the base where they were located. It said, goal, villages resistant, in parentheses, physically, ideologically, to violent extremist influence. So what now? Well, if we continue what we call stability operations, we should learn from what many special forces, conventional military, and USAID teams have already figured out independently, not from air-conditioned offices in D.C. and Nairobi and Abuja, but from multiple deployments over the last 21 years of blood spilt. Those teams that succeed, even within a short 6- to 12-month rotation, often focus on building capacity and resilience through true local power brokers who may not be part of the formal government and may not carry an official or traditional title. When done most successfully, this resilience or anti-fragility strengthening is executed as silently and invisibly as possible with a view specifically to deny areas of political violence, violent extremists, and proxies of great power competition. What this looks like on the ground is local actors using local solutions with local materials, with local knowledge, 
through a local optic to solve local problems on a local timeline with local narratives that reject political violence and politically violent influence and incursion. This means immediate sustainability. This means immediate local ownership. This is not a process towards transition. This is transition. It's understanding that even when war has broken traditional and rural governance systems, any semblance of a local system left is a better vehicle sometimes than U.S. money and a heavy U.S. presence. As far back as 2004, many Marine units fighting the most brutal, violent extremists in Iraq's Anbar province at the time already used this mindset and tactic despite and not because of the prevailing stabilization and counterinsurgency theories of that time. At the time, they called for robust top-down foreign involvement. Today, the most successful conventional and special forces units conducting complex and stabilization missions continue to employ this mindset of empowering some locals to provide their own brand of stability and counter violent extremism and political violence. These units quietly empower resilient actors from afar to the greatest degree possible. Yet, like in past conflicts, this tactic, this mindset, is taking its sweet time making it up the chain of command even today to convince some policymakers and some commanders what units in the field have already figured out. Mature and hands-off tactics to win our conflict against uh, political uh, violence, uh, actors of political violence and violent extremists, village by village, tribe by tribe, nation by nation, meeting our whole of government strategic end state. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, sometimes known as the graveyard of empires, some would have said that it was arrogance in the United States believing that the U.S. can do what other world powers had failed to do throughout history. But I believe the true arrogance is to believe that Afghanistan would not eventually, on their own, push out the Taliban like an immune system killing a virus, just as Afghanistan has spit out or Afghanized all past invading empires, or at worst, Afghanized the Taliban eventually to the point that in a few generations, they appear nothing like they were in the 1990s. Our best option is not necessarily to conduct direct operations, but in the case of Afghanistan up until half a year ago, to speed up, to enable whenever we can, and to leverage those immune systems as a moral priority. So not just allowing immune systems just to do their own things, but to try to find ways, hands-off, distant ways, to enable and leverage. And especially with the mindset of strength and resilience against great power competition, proxy wars, and the ever-growing ISIS in Africa and Asia, in strategic seams and rural systems, before instability and before political violence and before violent extremism can arrive. Thank you.